kind of a main idea, a first note for you is this. Here's the eternal plan of God. Today we get a rare look at a conversation between God and his son Jesus before Jesus is born. The focus is Christ's purpose of redemption. This passage is a great way to see the Christmas story with a, through a new lens or in a new way. And so let me explain that a little bit. Today, what we get is a dialogue between God, God the Father, and Jesus, God the Son. And we get this hundreds of years before Jesus enters into flesh. Does that make sense? That was awfully quiet. Okay, good. We spent, uh, I think it was nine weeks here through September, October, November, whatever it was. We spent about nine weeks together on Sunday evenings just doing what we called the essentials of the gospel, the essentials of our faith. And we talked about really a lot of things like the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus, right? And a lot of times our, our answer to who is Jesus begins at Christmas, right? It begins with God coming in the flesh, and we see this cute little child in a manger, and we see animals around, and wise men, or whatever we see, but that seems to be the beginning of the story. The Gospel of John gives us a more comprehensive view of who Jesus is, and it begins with Jesus in creation, and it says that the Word of God was with God and is God, and that there was nothing that has been made that has been made without Him, and nothing that is that exists beyond him. And then it says, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, the Son of God. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus is eternal, not living forever, but has always been. That Jesus was there in creation, and there's nothing that comes before Jesus. That Jesus is not made by God, but Jesus is God. And so when we think through the, the time frame of the Old Testament, we understand that Jesus is there, Jesus is God, Jesus is already, but Jesus has not entered into human flesh yet. And so this is a conversation, in fact, a rare glimpse at a conversation clearly between God the Father and God the Son, two, two parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Two persons of the one God speaking to each other. And at times, Jesus is speaking to us, humanity. But both God and Jesus speak in this passage, and it's before what we call the incarnation, or before Christmas, if you will. And so because of this, this is a view of, or a, a new way to see Christmas this year, as it's looking through the lens of why Jesus will come in the flesh that he will come to be our redeemer. And we'll kind of work through what that means today. So Isaiah 49, verse 1 says this. And this is, again, Jesus speaking. We'll see this a little bit later to kind of prove to us who's speaking. But verse 1 says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, the body of my mother. He named my name. So this is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking in advance of who, what his purpose is as he becomes flesh, kind of the why behind everything. And he's saying that God created him in the womb that knit him together in flesh for a purpose. So you have to think through really kind of two perspectives of Christ. One, the eternal God with no beginning and no end, right? As Jesus says, I am the first and the last, right? I was... I am, I always will be. 
Right? So you have to think through that divine lens of who Jesus is, and then he's talking about his incarnation. He's talking about when he becomes human for us. A great quote that comes out of the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, actually, is that Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. That Jesus became flesh so that he could redeem us to God, that we could become more like him. And so before that takes place, there is this dialogue, this conversation between God, God the Father, and Jesus, God the Son, and it's for the benefit of the hearer, humanity. So he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. This is verse one again. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and he named my name. So Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to the coastlands. His point here is that he's speaking beyond Jerusalem. He's speaking to the nations. He's speaking as if you would, like from ocean to ocean. Now, when the folks wrote this, understand that the known world to them was a lot smaller than we understand it today. But the same idea would happen today. When we think of, you know, from the other side of the country to this side of the country, we think from coast to coast, from east to west, And it's just saying, listen, I want all people to hear me, not just this subset of people, be that the Jewish people or people in Southern California saying, I want all of you to hear me. This message is for everyone. He says, listen to me. So another note for you, this is a message proclaimed by Jesus. Do you have that one? There we go. Jesus says, listen to me, just as the New Testament gospel messages are preached or proclaimed. If you were in essentials, a class I just referenced, you know the word kerygma, the, the spoken or proclaimed gospel. Well, just like the New Testament ones are spoken, so are the gospel messages spoken in the Old Testament. This unique message in Isaiah is Jesus sharing the gospel plan from before it happened. So we should listen intently. If Jesus is going to speak, and he's going to speak about why he will put on flesh and become human for us, we should hear this. If he's going to say, if he's going to begin this dialogue with listen, then that's what we should do. If the God who created the universe, the same God who put on flesh to live our life, to suffer and endure what we endure, to die the death that we deserve, that he did not, and to enter into the grave. Think of that. The author of life entered into death for us. If that God desires to speak to us, to tell us why he was becoming flesh, we should give it all our attention. Fair? That that should perk our ears up. That we should tune in to what Jesus is saying Verse 2, he, meaning God, by the way, God the Father, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This, This hiding him is about holding back the Messiah. So if you, let me, let me define a couple terms. Especially if you're new to this, I want to make sure this is clear. If you were Jewish, even some today, but if you were Jewish and you were hearing this, or if you were Jewish in the time of Jesus' birth, the term Messiah would mean this, the promised one of God from all the prophets looking forward, that the Messiah would come, 
that he would be a savior, that he would be a king, that he would be a suffering servant, as Isaiah said, that he would be a redeemer, that he would be the holy one of God, that he would do all these things, but they would summarize that in the Messiah. Messiah just meant the promised one or the anointed one. So it had a whole host of things, thousands of things that it meant all in one person. And that's why so many people missed who he was when Jesus came. Because their expectations were of that of maybe a military leader or a conquering king, a human king with a human army. But instead, they, and, and they would miss passages like the suffering servant. That they would miss that Jesus would suffer on our behalf. But when they anticipate a Messiah, that's what they're here. That's what they're, that's all that is wrapped up in that. And so Jesus is saying that God hid him for a season. In other words, that this could have happened 4,000 years ago instead of 2,000 years ago. But God said, no, not yet. Not until the right time for you to come. That I have planned a day. That I have, I have planned a season. That I have planned a time where Jesus will become flesh. And so though God had planned this from eternity, Jesus says, though I have known this is my purpose Though all that, God hid me away until the right time. That that first Christmas was a, was a, a pre-planned right time that God had in mind from eternity past that Jesus would enter into human flesh and literally become human for us. He says he made his mouth he made my mouth, God made Jesus' mouth like a sharp sword. Revelation 1.16, the second half of it should be super familiar to you. It says, from his mouth, this is John describing the glorified after he ascended Jesus, right? Not the Jesus who was born at Christmas, not the Jesus who lived, not the Jesus on a cross or resurrected, but the after ascension glorified Jesus on the throne. He gives this long description of him. And in the second half of verse 16, he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And we know that this is not a literal sword as a tongue, right? But that this has to do with his word. That his word pierces through all the junk, through all the stuff, and that his word enters straight into our heart. That it's, it's more metaphoric, it's more symbolic of all that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. That before anything ever happened, this was the plan. That's what Jesus is saying. You were on my mind before I ever entered flesh. Verse 3, he, meaning God, said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So God is calling Jesus Israel. Now, you have to put this in context. Israel is the name of a man who was born Jacob who was born really a con artist. It, Jacob literally means heel catcher, but it, 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 it's kind of a euphemism for con artist. That's really what it means. It's someone who is named by kind of their attributes or their traits, right? And that that's not a promising thing. That's not a good thing. It's not a compliment, right? That this guy's just been a con artist. He robbed his brother 
uh, by you know, using, conspiring with his mom to rip off his dad for his brother's blessing. I mean, it was a mess. And then he goes on and he tries to marry a woman. He gets ripped off by his father-in-law. And there's this back and forth of them just lying to each other. And, and it's just ugly until finally Jacob, the one whose God's promises have been over him all his life, right? But an, a highly unlikely person to be the fulfillment of any promises of God, right? Totally feel that in myself, right? Super unlikely, and had you known me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you're like, yeah, I don't think so, right? <laughs> That's Jacob. But then Jacob finally relents and follows God, and God renames him Israel, which literally means governed by God. But he is an incomplete and fallen and broken representative of those who are governed by God, like me, like you. Right, flawed, broken versions of people who proclaim to be and are governed by God. Not that we don't fight him, not that we don't run the other direction at times, but we are those who are governed by God. That's, that's what we profess to be. So just like Israel in the Old Testament, not the man, but the nation, is the church today. Israel is a fallen and broken version of people who are supposed to be following God. The church today, we're not off the hook. We're a fallen and broken version of the people who should be governed by God. So here's what God says to Jesus. He says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. You are truly my servant who is governed by me in whom I will be glorified. This is the complete and perfect Israel. A lot of times we talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes there's, there's ways to see Jesus in people like Adam, right? Romans 5 and 6 does this, that, that Adam and Adam all died and Adam all sinned, but in Christ all live, right? Like that there is this, if you're in Christ, you are now made new. You're not defined by your, your old father, Adam, but by your new father, God in heaven, right? That he is the... The new and greater Adam is what we might say. Jesus is the new and greater Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of what it looks like to be fully governed by God. And that's what God is saying to him. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Right? If he could look at the church today and say, listen, I'll be glorified through Generations Church, but not perfectly, not fully, not completely. Because generations, I love you, but we're, bro we're broken and flawed, right? Right? And, and if we were a perfect church, there's two things that would happen. I couldn't lead it, and you couldn't be a part of it. So, <laughs> but Jesus can, because he is perfect. And that's why we always say, I, I might be called the lead pastor, but the senior pastor of our church is Jesus. It's the only one competent to lead us. Because to be fair, we're not easy, Right? So when God's people fall short, whether it's in our worship of God or sharing the gospel with others, God's people fall short of what we're all called to do. We call that sin. We fall short. Jesus came to fulfill the call on humanity once for all, making him the perfect redeemer. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. God says that not as a I hope to be, but in you I will be glorified. Verse 4 but I said, I have labored, this is Jesus speaking, and I want you to hear this, and, and 
This was kind of an unplanned thing when I wrote these notes on Friday, which, by the way, I never do my notes on Friday, ever. I always study on Saturday. It's always my day off. So grateful that yesterday I didn't have to study, and just in the wake of things that were taking place. And so this was written, and I was wrestling through this, and I, I did some study on this, just like, really, okay, Jesus, what are you saying here? Hear this. These are Jesus' words. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Jesus throughout his ministry will have seasons of time where he will spend time and and we we are privy to some of them. I'm sure there are more. There are times when the Bible says that Jesus left early in the morning to go be alone to pray. I'm sure some of these moments were that. But there are times that we get glimpses into, like the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where Jesus is just saying, listen, I don't want to do what you're calling me to do, God. Like, I, I don't... Is there any other way? In Christ's humanity... Jesus pled with God, is there another way? In Christ's divinity, he knew this is the only way. Like there is no other way to the crown he's called to without the cross. You see, Satan will go on to tempt Jesus early in his ministry out in the desert, and he will offer him the crown without the cross. But Jesus knows this is the way I'm called to. And he knew it before he entered into flesh. But in that, he knew the pain of ministry. He knew that at the cross would be one of his disciples, his mom and another woman, and the rest will have all have abandoned him. That one of his closest friends, Peter, has gone back to fishing because following Jesus is too hard. And he's just frankly denied Jesus too many times. His other disciples have all scattered. He was betrayed by a close friend. That his ministry really amounted to 12 disciples, well, 11, because this one didn't work out, who for the most part are a ragtag bunch of dudes who have for the most part bailed on him. And yeah, there's 72 disciples, and yeah, after the resurrection, we see 120 people gathering in a church as the Holy Spirit falls on them uniquely for the first time. Yeah, we see that, but we're talking about Jesus, the perfect proclaimer of the gospel, God in flesh. No better gospel sharer. And I pastor a church bigger than he did. Are you with me? He doesn't have the marks of human success in his ministry. And he walked on water and fed thousands of people and raised the dead publicly and healed the blind and yet really had this small following. There are times in ministry that you just feel your ministry is not working. There are times in life as a believer where you just feel like, you know, everything I'm trying to do, it just doesn't seem like it's working. To get this call yesterday and to spend time with this family, just understand this. Just two weeks ago, I had a a conversation with with the man who passed. And it it was about this in a sense. And it feels like that conversation just in some ways just was not heard. And so to hear this yesterday, half the day was spent like, like, is anybody even listening anymore, God? Like, is anybody listening? 
And then I go back through these notes, and here's what Jesus says. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Jesus says, listen, no matter what it looks like when I look around, I know what I'm doing glorifies God. I know that my efforts may seem futile right now. They may seem in vanity, right? They may seem like they're a bit of a waste of time, Jesus says. But I know my right is with God. That I know that my job is to be Israel who does glorify God. So when we think that, so when I feel that way, when you feel that way, understand our Savior felt the same way. And if he can preach the perfect gospel, if he can proclaim the word of God exactly right, none of which I can do. And if he can feel this way, then I know that at least I have a Savior who understands some of the pain of ministry, or all of the pain of ministry, or all of the pain of parenting, or all of the pain of marriage, or all of the the pain of struggling through things as we approach Christmas, or whatever it might be. Because these are the words Jesus spoke. And he said them knowing He said them hundreds of years in advance. Listen, my work's going to be hard and long, and it's not always going to seem worth it. But God, glorifying you is always worthwhile. Jesus says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is Israel, but disobedient. And that Israel might be gathered to him. That's the same people in an obedient term. Jesus says, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Two things. Jesus begins with, he who formed me from the womb. Right? If you want to know why, if you're unfamiliar with this, and you just want to know why are Christians, why are they seemingly so worked up or so passionate about seeing abortion stopped? It's because of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of passages like this, where God talks about having a plan for you before you're even conceived in the womb and then knitting you together in the womb for a purpose. And we know that, okay, God has a purpose, that God creates life. And I don't want to pretend there's easy answers for people that, that are impregnated when a rape or an incident. I don't want to make like there's easy answers. I just want to say that there's something bigger. And I don't want to deny people's pain or that every answer is simple because it's not. Again, be a pastor and sit across the table from a young girl who's pregnant and scared, and it's not an easy conversation. Be with people when their conception was not of their choice, and it's not an easy conversation. But there's comfort found in the idea that God creates life, and that this life is valuable, And Jesus said, as I was knit together in the womb, as as humanity and divinity were somehow knit together in a womb, God did it with a purpose. And that we can celebrate and anticipate and worship for that purpose, even if the struggles are real. He says, and now the Lord says, you form me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Our source of joy and strength. That's our, next, that's our next slide. Jesus reminds us that when we feel that our best isn't enough, 
And what we are doing isn't making a difference that our strength comes from God. God our Father is pleased with our simple faithfulness. That God is pleased with you when you are faithful. And faithful will lead to fruitful. But his love for you is not dependent upon that. He doesn't love the guy down the street with 3,000 people gathering this morning in his church any more than he loves me. He doesn't love the girl down the street who who has a family that looks good on the outside or, or you whose family looks broken. He doesn't love you any different. And so when we struggle through this, our source of joy and strength comes from God. Verse 6, note the change of speaker here. This is God starting to speak. Remember I said this is a dialogue between God the Father and Jesus. Well, here's God now. He, meaning God, says to Jesus, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach the end of the earth. Here's what God says to Jesus. It's too little for you to rescue just Israel and Judah. You're entering into the world to enter all of, to, to rescue all of humanity. That your job is to the ends of the earth. That's a global gospel. It's a universal gospel. That's, a, that's an eternal gospel. That is a message that is from the, the first set of humanity that, that failed in their sin all the way to whoever it is that is last that comes to faith before the end, before Jesus returns, before Jesus reigns and rules physically. That, that is the gospel. And that no one comes to Christ outside that gospel. And God says, it's too small for you to come for one people, but you will come for every tribe and tongue and nation. You will come for everyone. That your gospel needs to go out to the entire world. Not everybody will respond to it. But it's not just one group of people. Here's a struggle for us, and it was a struggle for Israel. And I'll just put it up on the board and read it to you. Modern Christianity has some of the sinful, same sinful DNA as, the Old, as Old Testament Israel. We think that the gospel is for us and that it's optional to share it with those around us. God states clearly that the gospel is to be shared with others and it is our job to do so. It is not an option. God doesn't give it as an option to Jesus. Hey, just come and hang out with the folks in Jerusalem and whatever happens, happens. You're good. But no, he's going to go into Samaria, the people they hated. He's going to send his disciples to the ends of the earth, literally. And that we're a product of that. In fact, when we see this, we, we shouldn't see a command of God that we just have to obey and that we just kind of have to suck it up and do what God says. But we should joyfully know, listen, if somebody else didn't do what God had just commanded, we wouldn't be sitting here. And whether it's the most joyful Christmas you've ever had or the hardest one you've ever had, you wouldn't have this reason to cling to. Because somebody found this great enough that someone had shared the gospel with them that they would take it to someone else. And that we have the privilege of the gospel embedded to us. That we have been given this treasure. And that it's not our job to bury this treasure. It is our job to put this treasure to work that God may use it beyond here. Starting in January, we're going to do a, small, a short series called It's Not Your Treasure to Bury. And we're going to look through some of the parables that talk about that. But it's not your treasure to bury. 
It's not your gospel. It's God's gospel. It's the, it's the gospel that Jesus entered into humanity for, humbled himself to become flesh, lived the life that we're called to live, but he did it without sin. He suffered. He endured. He had pain. He had struggle. That he would go to the cross and suffer for us. That he would be buried and resurrected so that we could take this message outside. It's not an option. It's a part of what we are called to do and to be. That we are witnesses that Jesus is alive. That's a failure of the church and it was a failure of Israel. That they felt like the, the message was for them. That we treat it the same way. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He says, not only is Jesus called here the Redeemer and God's Holy One, but he says, you will be deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Now, bear in mind, Redeemer is a word, we've been saying that a few times today, but it's defined as this, one who compensates for the faults or flaws or, the, or the, the aspects of someone that are missing. It is taking whoever you are, you are and how incomplete you are, and as a redeemer, making you whole, completing you, making you whatever it is you're called to be, no matter how frail or broken, no matter the sins you've committed or the sins that have been committed to you, that Jesus is our redeemer. He makes us complete in Christ that we are capable of doing anything he's called us to. Whether that means that we, we're called to take our, the gospel message to our neighbors or our loved ones, or if that means that we are to represent Christ in the midst of tragedy to our families, or if that means that, hey, we're called to love our spouse, even when our spouse is unlovable, whatever it might be. That Jesus is our redeemer. He takes whatever we are missing and he makes us whole. He makes us complete. He makes us capable and able. He is the redeemer, and yet he will be deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, God says. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, meaning God, speaking to Jesus, in a time of favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, a promise, a guarantee to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. God has been promising, and this is the word when we talk about Messiah, God has been promising for thousands of years before Jesus came that a Messiah would come, a Redeemer would come. Here's a passage, hundreds of years before Jesus became flesh, and there's a, a promise that a Redeemer will come. Someone will come to fix what's broken, to heal what's broken, to redeem what's broken. God says, I have a covenant, a guarantee, a promise. And that promise started way back in the Garden of Eden. As humanity sinned, God preached the first gospel in Genesis 3 and promises that the seed of a woman will come and crush the head of Satan. And that first prophecy, that first proclamation of the gospel, that first giving of hope, that good news, and everything forward, all the covenants to Israel, to Abraham, to everyone, comes true in Christ. So when people say they were waiting for Messiah, there was a lot of weight on that word because so much promise had been shared. So Jesus comes and he is the fulfillment of literal, literally thousands of prophecies. We've talked about that a lot 
over the past few weeks. Fulfilling all that God had promised, Jesus entered into human flesh and gave his life for our sins. Gave his life to redeem, no matter how broken we are, to make us whole, to make us right, to love us wherever we are and call us forward in him. That's the gospel. That's the thing presented to you and you have the choice. Do you want to respond to that or do you want to continue walking away? And Jesus has come to be that. Paul will go on in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 and say this. For God says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's quoting Isaiah 49, 8. And then Paul adds this, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus has come now. Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the dead. Now is the day. Now is that day where God has fulfilled all that he promised to do in Christ. And then Paul basically is looking at everyone saying, will you now respond? Today is the day to respond. So I would say that to all of us, no matter if we're not a follower of Jesus today, or whether we're brand new to following Jesus, or we've been walking with Jesus for decades. Today is the day to respond to Jesus, no matter what that means. That means laying down a sin that you've been hanging on to, If that means laying down a pain that you've been holding on to, a fear that you've been holding on to, we echo Paul and say this, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Be saved from that today. Verse 8, let's read that again. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In the day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to prisoners, come out. Those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by the springs of water will guide them. So I want to close up the next couple of verses with some application. There's a consistent theme of redemption, and the covenant signed to them. In other words, the sign that is marks the promise of God to the people. The covenant symbol will be their release from Babylon. God is saying, listen, to prove that what I'm saying is true, I will release you from Babylon. And that will be an image or a metaphor, something you can learn from, that I need to release you from your sin. That I need to deliver you from your sin, just like you need to be delivered from being enslaved to another nation. And the symbol of this covenant is is your release. Like the symbol of a covenant of marriage is our ring. Ring doesn't make me married. It's a reminder of the promise and the covenant I have with my wife, Lisa. That the release from them was a covenant symbol that Christ would come. And that when they were released, they would remember that God is going to do something greater through us. So I want to look at some of the application to that as we've been talking about Redeemer. So Christ our Redeemer... Jesus shows us our imprisonment to sin and spiritual blindness, images that show us that redemption is healing to our broken lives and not something we can do on our own. We need a redeemer. No person or thing can restore what is broken and make us whole again other than Jesus. We need a redeemer. We can't do it. 
Verse 11, and I will make all my mountains a road and all my highways shall be raised up. If you've been a part of the Isaiah series, you've been here over the last few months, you know this, this mountains and valleys thing is a reminder that the gospel is a level playing field, that it evens the field for all people. So Christ our Redeemer, here's the next note. Jesus promises to make all roads level, meaning the gospel is for everyone, high or low, whether we believe we are unloved and unforgivable or we believe, or we believe that we're able to reach God on our own merit, we need a Redeemer. Jesus meets us all where we are, and he calls us upward in him. If you think you can do it on your own, that's okay. He covers that sin too. Just leave it there. <laughs> Verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, these from the land of Syene. So Christ our Redeemer, here's another one. Jesus reiterates that the gospel is for everyone everywhere. A universal and timeless gospel assures our faith. And it reminds us that we're called to be those who tell others of our faith. To the ends of the earth is the calling of every believer everywhere, that we are to join our Redeemer in his work. This does not mean you've got to find yourself on the other side of the globe to fulfill this. In fact, I would suggest that all you have to do is go next door. Or within your own family, workplace, school, friends, neighborhood, community, that our job is there. Rarely the few will be called to go to the other side of the equator or something. Our job is to take the gospel just next door, and we fall short of that. But to remind us that in order to get to the ends of the earth, you go through your neighbor. All these names that we keep asking you, hey, write these things down. Let us pray for them by name. Do this. And we keep encouraging you. Take one of those name tags. Write a name on it. It doesn't have to be a full name. Write a first name or something. God knows who they are. Hang them up there so we have a reminder to pray for these people. So that we know that each Sunday, each service, and throughout the week, well, our staff and, and any of you that are in here can continue to pray for them. That's the first step in reaching them. The second step is maybe taking that card with you that's in the chair in front of you, instead of leaving it here today, just taking that one home and say, okay, who, who can I pray for? Who can I give this to? And then just a little boldness to go invite someone to join you on Christmas Eve. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Next note, Christ our Redeemer Jesus commands all of us to worship in response to the salvation we have in him. The comfort and compassion given freely by our Redeemer drives us to our knees in worship and causes our voices to lift up in song. Worship is the right response today. If you're new here, that's why we do three songs on the back and two songs on the front. We believe that worshiping in response is what God has called us to do. And so we give of ourselves, we respond in worship each Sunday anticipating that Jesus has spoken to us. I'll close with these verses. Verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have had no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Hear that. God says this. I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. No matter who you are or how you feel, God has not forgotten about you. You are engraved on the palm of his hands. As the nails pierced Christ, it's for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. 
We desire to respond to you. I pray that whatever it is that prevents us from responding, whatever it is that holds us back, that fear, that pride, whatever it might be, you're our redeemer. You make us whole. Help us to come to you in confidence. God, I pray for the broken and the hurting this morning. May you be their comfort. May you show compassion, as you said in that last few verses. For those who feel forgotten, will you remind them that, you are engra- that they are engraved in your palms? Your name, I mean, their name is on your palms. For those that celebrate and worship, may they do so in response to all that you have done. May they remember that not everybody, not everybody's having the best Christmas ever. And that the gospel is their job and their responsibility to imitate your compassion and your comfort to those in need is our job. And that we gather and we take your message to others that we get to. We need to join you and participate. Help us never lose, that, lose sight of that. Jesus, you are the one who has glorified God in everything. Because of that, you make us whole. And so we joyfully follow you and come under you. And we ask, redeem us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.